welcome to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. In this podcast, we discuss mystical works of literature and how they relate to recovery. We hope you enjoy today's podcast episode. Hello, this is Buddy C, and I am an alcoholic. Almost want to say, and I'm proud of it, but not really. I don't know. I'm, I'm grateful for it. And be grateful for it. Today we have Kate and Marla and Tina and Craig. Good to see you guys. You too. We're going to talk about the third verse of the Tao Te Ching today. And we're going to go ahead and start conversation and see if uh, Sensei pops in. I know he's in the middle of his conference, but I'm hoping he can make it. If not, we'll just converse amongst ourselves. Marla, you want to read the third verse from uh, Wayne Dyer? Surely. Putting a value on status will create contentiousness. If you overvalue possessions, people begin to steal. By not displaying what is desirable, you will cause the people's hearts to remain undisturbed. The sage governs by emptying minds and hearts, by weakening ambitions and strengthening bones. Practice not doing. When action is pure and selfless, everything settles into its own perfect place. Selfless action. Putting a value on status will create contentiousness. Mm. You're richer than I am, so you must be greater than me. Yeah. And I'm jealous. And I'm going to be mad. How do we keep from overvaluing? He says, if you overvalue possessions, people begin to steal. This is, That was my first question for Sensei was how to keep from overvaluing. What kind of practice can we do when we start seeing ourselves? Because we, I say we all do it. I know I do it. There's times I overvalue things, you know, and I catch myself. I go, I'm putting too much importance on a particular thing or whatever, you know. What what do you guys do when that happens? Practice non-attachment to that, whatever it is. This value on status or valuing possessions is kind of based out of insecurity in myself, I think. Because I'm trying to prove to people that I'm as good as they are by putting a value on these things. Does that make sense to you guys? Yeah, it's, it's the charade. It's the, right. The form, right? So if I'm I'm feeling insecure and like, I'm not good enough or not as good as other people, then those are ways that like, these are like false ways that I can, look like I'm better than people. Like, look at this possession I have. Look at, Mm -hmm. look how great I am at this. You know, it's a false way that I can kind of bring myself to the forefront to make myself feel better when actually I am feeling bad. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Lou, how you doing today, sir? We're, we're talking about the third verse of the Tao Te Ching uh, from, uh, we're using Wayne Dyer 
his book for that. And I, I see you have it, actually. Uh, this isn't Wayne's. This oh, is the red. This is the red pine one. Okay, it looks uh, like I've got a couple couple versions here. Okay, so we're just we're just discussing that right now. I can I can put a PDF in the chat for you if you need it. I think I have the link to all of the translations. Okay. Oh, we forgot to mention our meetings, Marla. Your meeting's still going. Your daily. Through the pandemic, dailyrecoverymeeting.com. Daily Monday through Friday, 1 p.m. Eastern. Yes. Then zoomaameetings.com is a 9 p.m. Eastern AA meeting every night with a speaker meeting on Saturday. We're, we bumped 100 the other night, and we haven't added up our limit yet. And I hope we don't. I hope we keep it at 100. That's a lot of folks to have a meeting. And so, yeah, that's right. See. So I'd recommend being early in case it bumps. How do you break away in tables? You can't do that. You don't. You can't. Yeah. But uh, it's up to the group conscience, though. I turned it over to the group in May. So if they want to go up to a thousand, they can. It's up to them. They vote that now. So, but I want to get those mentioned and the links are in the notes, uh, in the comments. But, uh, Lou, we were talking about uh, the idea of overvaluing possessions, and Kate brought up a very good point that many times that is embedded in our insecurities, that we overvalue things to try to present a persona that's not necessarily the case. If we, you know, if, if we if we have a low self-esteem or whatever, you know, and we're trying to present something that's not actually us that's that's a reason that we do that correct kate yep all right reasons awesome. reason some people have um bookshelves and bookshelves full of books that they haven't read it looks good exactly um any other comments on that uh, overvaluing possessions anyone else by not displaying what is desirable, you will cause the people's hearts to remain undisturbed. My second question for Sensei was, displaying what is desirable, you see this as a problem. Why can't I be proud of what I have worked for? I think there's a difference be between being proud of what you work for and flaunting it. Yeah. Uh, I think... Uh, I think the things that I work for, I like to, I like to keep my, keep to myself. I don't, I don't use things as a status symbol. I don't use things as an, as a look at me, look, look what I've got. I don't like to put myself out there and try to put myself above other people. I, th I think that could be what that's referencing. You know, I like to, I like to stay grounded. Yes, I like nice things. I like, you know, have a, have a standard eleven. Um, to overvalue my possessions, I used to. I used to overvalue my possessions, and I think Kate was on a, on a brilliant thing there. Just, just the insecurities. You know, I, I would do that to, to make myself a bit more secure in myself, make myself feel better about myself. I would, um, I do this exercise with with money, where I, I hand over, I hand over most of my money to Louise, because I want to, I want to remain in that mindset of um, not scarcity. But at the same time, not abundance. I want to stay right side because uh, money was money became a, a bit of a, an issue for myself. 
um, around about 15, 16 months. And the um, the answer to it was I foolishly went to Buddy for some advice and he told me just let it go. <laughs> Surrender it, let it go. So I did. And that's, that's, that's been a great thing, just not, not putting a value on, on things that I have. So for once you did what I suggested, is that what you're saying? It was the only time. <laughs> and I think it's because, I think it's because Louise heard you say it and she kind of held me, held me up to it. <laughs> uh, do you think there's a connection between displaying what's desirable and overvaluing your possessions? I think those two things are very much connected. I think there is, yeah. I, I think I'm displaying it because I've, of my insecurities, like you're talking about. Yeah, I think I think you're displaying it just so just so you can say to people, "Look, look what I've got." And my question was things I had worked for. You know, for me, I really try to look at nothing in that way. I, I try to look at things as all gifts. So if I'm looking at something as a gift, then. I have a much better chance of not falling into that display trap. Does that make sense? And, you know, and I think probably we may create this pendulum too, or, you know, that idea that when we, when when we show a lot of uh, pride and ego that we create that envy in other people, when we do the pride, you know, that swing with that, maybe, maybe part of this too. So when we're displaying what's desirable, we cause people's hearts to to get disturbed, you know, that they don't have this. Why don't they have what I, you know, that kind of a thing. You can also do the same with yourself because when you start to look at things that you have, you can always want more. And that feeds desire. I have I have this now. I want better. Don't you want more because you see other people have more too? Yeah, I had. A, I used to have a brother-in-law. I mean, my first wife's brother-in-law. I mean, uh, his. Uh, anyway, he he made a lot of money on real estate and didn't know a whole lot about real estate. He would just fall into things, right? And it would make me so mad because I knew a lot more than he did, and I worked it all the time. And he he just stumbled into things that were that he made a lot more money, like huge deals than, than what I made. And, uh, I was, I was very much, very envious. This was 20 years ago. He would do subdivisions and I'd be flipping houses, you know? (laughs) And I'm like, fuck, I forgot more than he knows, you know? (laughs) You know? And, uh, yeah, it's easy to fall into that trap. Easy. Yeah. On the other hand, if you think about recovery, like we need to display somewhat what we have so that other people can see that recovery is working, you know, so that they can see that they could have that. Right? So isn't that displaying something that's desirable? We do that through we do that through attraction rather than promotion though, don't we? We do that by showing up. And not- right. I suppose you're not like walking around being like, I'm amazing in recovery. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But- <laughs> yeah. But we, we don't go right. 
yeah. We don't go around advertising a, a sobriety dates and all that and just, you know, telling everybody how much, you know, how much time we've got and oh no, I did. Oh, I did. I didn't I? Yeah, so that's that's probably a bad example. Um, but we don't go around saying, look at me, look at me, this this is the program I work, this is what I do, you should be doing this, you should be doing that, because I'm great and you're not. You know, what we what we're really doing is we, we need to we need to have that level of humility. We need to have that level of humility that we can build people up. We can we don't forget how bad things go for ourselves because we want to help other people. And at the same time we don't turn and say, Oh, really shit for me and look at me now. Look look at my life now. I've, I've got such an amazing life now. You know, I, th- I think the people that do that, Paul mentioned it earlier on, that's that's like the Facebook life of people that you see. That's that's the part that they want you to see rather than actually what goes on in your, your daily basis. So I think if we are flaunting that sort of thing, you know, there's 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 maybe a, a, a an element of insecurity going on there. People are wanting people are wanting people to look at them. People are wanting to attract people because they want to surround themselves with or or have themselves surrounded rather than surround themselves. They're looking for that security in security in numbers in the community. They're maybe they maybe they maybe too insecure to ask for help. Maybe too insecure to say, look, guys, you know, I, I'm 10 years sober, but I'm still struggling. It could be an, an element of, look, you know, I'm too proud to ask for help. I was like that for a long time. Yeah, maybe one of those things where it it, um, it shines through you so you don't have to display it. It just, if you're if you're in the right spot and can flow with the dial, then it shines shines through you. You don't have to put it out on, on display. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one, Lou. That's good. Um, I, th- I yeah. think sometimes your recovery can be related to the Dow as well. Just just doing the next right thing and doing what comes up and not resisting what comes up and just just going with the flow and just seeing where it takes you and not putting the barriers up in place. Uh, that's, that, that, was a, that was a big thing for myself. It used to be a 12, a, a 12 hurdle program. I used to work rather than a 12 steps because I had to, I had to get a boost up every single one of them because I, I made it bigger than I had to be because I was resisting it. I wasn't. I wasn't as receptive to it as, as I maybe should have been. That word there, Kate, for desire, you know, that we display what is desirable. is talk, uh, talking about objects of desire, like things that you would covet, attractions, causes people to, yeah, be envious. You know, our... And our approach to sobriety is actually the opposite of that, like y'all been talking about, I think, you know, where it's not something that we say, be like me or aren't I great shit, you know, that kind of thing. It's, this is what I did. You know, this is how it works for me if I'm asked. And if I'm not, then if I could just let the light shine like Lou was talking about. Hmm. Yeah, that's good, Kate. The sage governs by emptying minds and hearts and by weakening ambitions and strengthening bones. How does a sage empty minds? How does he do that? I'm assuming it's a he. Didn't, didn't, we, didn't we speak about that last week? We were renouncing wisdom. We were getting out of the, get, getting out of the books and, and actually living life, getting... Rather than rather than constantly studying on something and, and forgetting about what's really in front of us, could well, that be a reference? That just, that. We, we didn't the, the SRC meeting last last week. 
renounce renounce wisdom and, and give up learning. And it was basically a reference to listen, let's let's just let's just stop thinking about what you think you know and let's look at what's really going on. I, I used to blind myself with what I thought was going on. Because I, I used to read all this quick lit book. Quick lit for, for the for the younger kids or, or for the older people out there. It means quit and drink literature. So quit lit. All the cool kids and that kind of convinced into these these little words. So quit lit. I just I just want to sound like I just, I just want to sound like I'm hip and trendy. Quit lit. So, so the literature that helped you quit drinking, you know, you, you would sit, oh. you would sit and read all that sort of thing, and but you would never apply it to yourself because I don't know about you guys, but I sat and read it with a beer. You know, I'm, I'm looking for ideas, but I, I wasn't actually putting the stuff into practice. So maybe that's how the, maybe that's how the sage enters enters your mind. Just kind of says, like, look, just forget all that stuff, and I'll show you how to do it. I'm looking at the Jonathan uh, Star make my own translation. The sage, the sage's way of ruling is to put at ease their negative emotions and what upsets them. So the sage puts at ease. Um, that's how he empties minds and hearts. He's putting them at ease of the things that uh, upset them and fill the seat of their mind with what is dear to them. So instead of their belly, like their spiritual belly, not their physical belly. You know, where it says uh, weakens ambitions and strengthens bones. It's not weakening ambitions like we're thinking of. It's it's uh, weakening their um, their self-dependence, you know, taking taking those things out that are uh, their self-willingness, their, um, you know, like. Like when we come to recovery, one of the things we're taught is that we have to be powerless. That's what I think that could be relating to. You know, we have to learn how to let go. We have to learn how to surrender, not how to be a better buddy, you know, but how to let buddy go. That's how we learn to, to stay sober. That's what the steps are about for me is just teaching me how to be powerless. So I, I, I kind of relate that to the same thing, making us pliant um, comments and the weakening ambitions also could mean uh, taking away their craftiness and their strategies. You remember when you first came into sobriety? I, I know for me, I wanted to do just enough to get sober, but not no any more than I had to do. So I was always thinking about what to do and do just enough. And if I drank again, okay, well, how can I step it up one more level? <laughs> yeah, everybody's head shaking. So you know what I'm talking about. And so he takes away that craftiness, you know, that's the weakening ambitions. I think it's not, you know, not like we think of that you have no mo motivation to do anything. It's that you weaken that the, the negative part of that, the, that craftiness. But we're always trying to figure it out. Yeah. Comments? Um, I, I know the Tao is always telling us to let it go and to not think too much and just let things happen. Get out of our yeah. way. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, you really have to, this, this person has to take a diet, like a news diet. Several, Don't do it. It's a trick. Several out, several days a week. <laughs> Just to, there's so much going on that's causing anxiety. It's hard to step back, I guess, and and do the down now because there's a lot at stake. And it, yeah, it's anxiety provoking. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm trying to find ways to settle the anxiety. Well, the question hey will be, oh, go ahead, Tina. Hi, guys. Um, you know, this is awesome. I'm glad we had the time to um, just really chew on this third verse for um, a little bit of an extended time, kind of like a gift. But um, I'm I'm wondering, you know, like an unexpected gift anyways, what I was saying. Um, I feel like when, because I was really confused with the losing your ambition, your drive, your desires, because I, I often think, well, aren't those good things? that's also our society and our culture and I think what is they're saying is the problem um I think I, I kept thinking about when I've been in uh overseas uh specifically thinking of Italy uh we've been able to go a handful of times and I've noticed like in the like a very American thing to have in in Italy and I think in um Tokyo, I've been, that it's the TGIF, like, thank God it's Friday, and I have a case of the Mondays, and all these references to thank God it's the weekend, and it just seems, it's a very American thing, and I I couldn't understand why, and then you realize they have the siesta, they have the, where they take it just a little bit more slowly, you know, even when it comes to drinks, we're like, come on, where, where are our drinks? And in Italy, this is like, yo, they give you a pour a glass of wine and everyone just like sips it for a long time. And the Americans are sitting over here like, hello, we're trying to do something here. <laughs> Can you get a move on? And um, so in, when I think about it in that regard, I think about let's like being ambitious means let's hurry up so I can, uh, apply or imply my will so I can force my will on stuff so I can hurry up and so I can promote my ideas and not just take it as it comes and whatever thy will be done is and I think about that in terms of a cultural thing where we are go 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 like Marla was saying it's like these things that create anxiety um and that when I thought about it in those terms the ambition seemed like it was doing a disservice but that's what I've been it's been ingrained in me to, to that's what we you have to be. You have to get ambitious. You have to go, go, go and do, do, do. And in other cultures, that's, they're saying what's wrong with heart disease and all these things that are contributing to poor health is by not just, it's like when we go on vacation and I've, so, I've said so many times, I got to hurry up so I can get there and hurry up and relax. It's just, just such an oxymoron. And I've heard people say, the goal, my goal is to live like it doesn't matter where I'm at. I'm always this. Um, I know there's like a term for it, say la vie or something like that. Like there's other terms like just let life happen. Um, probably, uh, you know, every like, but I don't, I don't know if America, if we have a thing that's kind of like let 
life happened. But that helped me think about it, listening to you guys talk and even question, like, why is that a bad thing? Why is ambition and desire a bad thing? And I think about it in terms of other cultures. And I don't know how Scotland compares um, to that, but maybe Craig could shed some insight on if, if, if I'm even on the right track with how that's a lot of how Americans are. And it's so foreign for us to think about not being that way. Thank you, Tina. That's good. Craig, you have something? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good point, Tina. The, um, I was brought up in the business that I'm in, and the, the regional manager that I started working with, he was one of these ones he would phone you at six o'clock in the morning just to make sure you're up and ready to go. Just make sure that, you know, what you're going to do today, what you're going to achieve today, and you're like, man, I'm not even out of my bed yet. So that was that was a coach that I kind of grew up in, and we're very sales-driven. Well, we're, we're in retail, so we have to be that way. So I think it really depends on on what it is you're looking to achieve. When I was when I was growing up in this business, we were taught that you're actually the chief executive of this branch. This this is your part of the business. This is and you're going to get out of this business exactly what you're going to put into it. And they paid us they paid us a, a great amount of money for, for doing the job that we do. And then the uh, and then families came along, and then families went because you're still ingrained and in looking at this business. So I think when I when I now look at ambition and desire, I don't look at it from the, the sense of, you know, the harder I work, the more I'm going to earn. I look at it the harder the harder I work, the more I'm going to miss out on my family. The more I'm going to miss out on the things that actually matter. So what is it that I actually desire? And Tina, you mentioned about um, this this sort of attitude having detrimental effects to to health. Look at the relationships that we've ruined just because we've been focused on the wrong thing. Um, I never had any, I never had any, uh, any affairs or anything like that when I was drinking. But I, I certainly thought I was having an affair with with alcohol. That had a detrimental effect on on the relationship I was with with my wife. Um, so it really depends on our outlook in life and what we'll, what, what we are desiring. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to desire having better relationships with people desiring to spend more time with people because more particularly with kids, kids spell love completely different to, to how we spell it. They spell it T-I-M-E. It's not what you, it's, it's not it's not what you can give them. It's not it's not how much money you spend on them, but it's, it's actually how much time you can spend with them. And to me that's that's what I desire now. That's that's what I yes, I still have to work. You know, there is there is a downside to there is a downside to life. I have to work. That's that's the yin and the yang. You know, in order to get to spend time with the kids and that in a nice, comfortable house and doing the things we want to do, the downside is I have to work. But I try to do that as little as possible. I try to do my work during work time, and I, I don't let it. I don't let it Im- impact my my family life as much as it used to do. I've, I've definitely cut back on work. I've seen that. I've, I've cut back on work, but at the same time, I'm working a bit more. I'm kind of working smarter now. I've signed up for doing overtime from now until Christmas, but it's just the business is just the business is just booming because everybody's been decorating for the past six months in lockdown. So the job that I do, people are people are, are wanting their services. So I've agreed to work overtime just until then, just until the end of the year. But at the same time, I've set that boundary in place that like, come January, that's it. It's, it grinds to halt. I'm just. Yeah, we'll hold to, you to that. Yeah, yeah, please do. 
Okay. Because it's and and I've, I've said it to Lise as well. Listen, this this is this is my intention. And then after that, you know, it's you know, it's it's time with it's time with Callum, it's time with you, and it's time with Caitlin. It's but just you, yeah. But you know, though, I think this is talking about being able to live above that. You know, uh, that last the last part of this stanza, the last stanza in the third verse says, "Practice non-doing." Like, I think that's meaning not not doing, but not doing all that ambitious, self-driven stuff that we do. Uh, when action is pure and selfless, everything settles into its own perfect place. So for me, the way to get past ambitions and overvaluing possessions and all those things is by learning how to take selfless action. Back to that same less of buddy. <laughs> exactly what I don't want. You know, I want more of buddy. You know, I want more, more. Give me more, you know. It's the opposite. It's what, dying to live? Couple I know of, I, go ahead, Kate. I know I definitely have that drive to, to you know, what can I do to get ahead right now in my life? I want to get ahead, you know, and it doesn't work out well for me. You know, it, it usually isn't the right thing to do that. My mind is like, do that. You'll look better. If you do that, you'll sound better. If you do that, this is going to get you this benefit. You can have that if, you know, it's like, it's all very selfish thoughts about how I can get myself ahead. And I find that, you know, I have to pay attention to that. And I have to, when my, like it says, when action is pure and selfless, like I can tell what my actions ought to be if I think them through. You know, and when I act, when I do the selfless actions and I go and help somebody else, I feel so much more relaxed and calm and at peace than when I'm fighting and fighting and fighting to do this stuff for, for me, for me, for me, for me. It doesn't, it makes me miserable. And, and you know, Kate, and I don't think that it it uh, is about stopping what you're doing and going and doing something else and going and, you know, uh, volunteering at whatever. I think the real gift is when we learn that what we're doing to do it in a selfless way, whatever job we're doing, because no matter what I'm doing, I can take it from either direction. You know, as simple as riding down the road, I can do that in a selfless manner or I can do that in a giving manner. Marla? I, I'm practicing this right this very minute and, and I'm taking these jobs where I'm just trying to get an income, but they're, you know, minimum wage kinds of things. And, um, you know, in, in, at the beginning, it made me sad that I had to do this, but then I, I kept thinking, you know, I, I need to do these things the best I know how to do just be, I need to show up and be good at it no matter what. And 
you know what? I did that and felt way better than fighting it. It's a, it's a, just a different perspective. Do That's the best you can. your ambition, Marla. Yeah. In a good way. Yes. In a good way. I'm never going to be rich, but you know, I'm good. <laughs> Who knows what you'll stumble into? Who knows? You hear those things all the time about someone does this and then they do this. And then before you know it, this has happened. And like, how did that happen? And a lot of times it originates with a selfless action. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's really has in store. Do what? We'll see what the universe has in store for uh, the future. Exactly. You know, if we learn just to take every action we're looking at and take it from a selfless position, you know? Right. Because I think, you know, I can go and do a favor for somebody, help them out, do something. But if I'm doing, if I'm doing that to help them, good. If I'm doing that, and thinking about it like I'm this great person who's doing this favor for somebody, you know, that's not really a very selfless action. That's like a self-aggrandizing action, you know? So it's the exact same action that I'm taking, but it's not actually the right. I don't know how to you say would be that. displaying kind of right. Right. <laughs> and it's just the way I'm thinking about it really. Cause it's yeah. the same action. Yeah. It could be the same job. You could take any job that you could have, any vocation, and you can do that vocation from selflessness or from selfishness. Yeah, that's good. And and that practice not doing, I don't think it has anything to do with not doing or or doing nothing. It has everything to do with doing things selflessly instead of selfishly. That's the difference. That's what causes us, causes things to settle in their perfect place. See, we want, we want the quote will of God in our life. We want things to be the way they're supposed to be. This says that if we do selfless action, everything settles into its own perfect place. So, go ahead, Luke. I was just going to say, I think another way of thinking about it is with if I do it without expectation, if I do it without expectation of thanks or self-aggrandizement of some kind, um, then it's probably more pure. <laughs> uh, you know, my I think I mentioned before a program, a 12-step program I come out of is Al-Anon, and we say that um, expectations are premeditated resentments. You, you, you do something out of you do something if somebody doesn't appreciate it, then you get resentful because they didn't appreciate this good thing you did for them. Right. That's good, Lou. Thank you, sir. Any comments that you want to read out of Wayne Dyer before we finish? How about this on the bottom of the first page? He's suggesting that, tr talking about uh, Lao Tzu, suggesting that trusting in the Tao is the way to be directed by the source of your creation and to be guided by our higher principle than your ego-driven desires. That's exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. Remind yourself daily that there is no way to happiness. Rather, happiness is the way. 
don't let desires obscure your eternal connection to the Tao. And I really like to do the Tao now. Choose to do the Tao and listen for guidance. Be grateful that you have the choice to make the purchase. Then practice listening to yourself and not doing. Through your feelings, the Tao will reveal the way for you in that moment. Trust it. You might be guided to buy the item and savor it with gratitude. Donate it. Procure one for you and one for someone else. Give the money to charity instead of getting the item or, or refrain from obtaining it altogether. Practice doing the Tao in everyday situations, and you will know contentment in a deeper sense. As this verse says, when actions pure and selfless, everything settles into its own perfect place. Now, that's my definition of contempt. There he is. Hey, buddy. Say, <laughs> How are you, sir? I, I, let me quote uh, a salesman <laughs> I used to travel with. We, we went on a call. And we were very late. We couldn't find a place. And we come in and he says, well, we're late. How do you like us so far? <laughs> <laughs> it's no problem. Actually, We've I gone apologize. through and talked, and we said, you know, when Sensei, I know he's going to want to, re- he's going to call me, and he's going to want to record this, and I'll let you know when, and we'll put his answer to the questions <laughs> on the end. So, we okay. were just at the right place for you. So, if- okay, wonderful. You're so you're so uh, understanding. We've had this conference going on, and it's kind of disorienting me. We have, you've been on it a couple of calls. Yes. There there are talks all day, and uh, I've been trying to fit in my real life around, around those times. Well, it's, if, if we want to run through these questions real yeah, quick, yeah, you know, just a few minutes, we don't have to go no long, or we can do this at another time if it's better. No, I'm, ha- I'm, fi- I'm happy to be here. Okay, okay. Unless you guys have to go. I'll no, we've got here. a few minutes. We're good. As long as you want. Um, let's just go through our questions, and we'll just, uh, do you have those up? Uh, I have them or I can put them in the chat for you. Why don't you just uh, call them out? Just ask me each one. First question. Any thoughts on how to keep from overvaluing possessions? Because it's talking about the, the quote is putting a value on status will create contentiousness. If you overvalue possessions, people begin to steal by not displaying what is desirable you will cause the people's hearts to remain undisturbed. Yeah, if you think about it, I get a little resentful. I do a lot of projects, and I'm going in and out of my basement studio shop, coming upstairs and going in the front door. My wife grew up in Chicago, so she's very security-oriented, and she'll tend to lock the door behind me. <laughs> so I'm having to unlock the door and unlock the door. And you have to, you think to yourself, you know, if people didn't steal, I wouldn't, we wouldn't have to have locks. We wouldn't have to have locks on our doors. And that's not a way of finding fault. It's just stating a fact. It's like, um, you know, one of the precepts is do not steal. We, you, in fact, it, we think you cannot steal. You think you can steal. And the person you stole from thinks you stole from them. But you can't really own anything, not for long anyway. And so it's just, it, it does. Um, and yet I'm sitting here in a house full of stuff, you know. And, it's, and, and I have found, I don't, I don't think I overvalue it. In fact, I kind of resent it, you know. I would like to be rid of it. And they, Freud said that about collectors. He said they collect 
ceramic cows, whatever they collect. I hope I'm not insulting anybody who collects ceramic cows. But he said that psychologically they really want to get rid of them. And so they're trying to get them all in the same place. You know? uh, so, yeah, it's a real dilemma. But I don't know if we're overvaluing things or if we just get caught up in it. And all of the promotion marketing advertising says you, you, you shouldn't be satisfied with that car you have. Cosmetics industry says you shouldn't be satisfied with your lips or your eyes or your hair. You know, here, let me sell you your eyes. Let me sell you your lips. Let me sell you your hair. But I think it's a deeper syndrome than just we personally value things. I, I get to the point that I, I pick up things. I, I have curbside collectibles, collect, collectibles. I had a booth for a while in a place here on Ponce de Leon where you put furniture in, you could, you know, sell pieces once in a while. They had a fire, so, you know, I don't have that anymore. I had to bring all that stuff home. But I hate to see things go in the uh, in the landfill. You know, I grew up on a farm. We were dirt poor. We didn't have any money. You had to fix everything yourself. You had to make things work. And now nobody knows how to fix anything. Everybody just, you get a furniture in Ikea, you throw it on the curb. If you move it twice, the way that stuff is built, of ticky-tacky, it falls apart. And it's just such a throwaway waste economy. The whole thing is, it's just a, I think that's just a tip of the iceberg. That's a part of a huge, huge problem. And We've benefited from the Industrial Revolution, but look at what it's dumped on us at the same time. I don't know if that's answering your question, but it's a, it's, it's a pet peeve of mine. It's a big one in design circles. How much do we need? You know, that's, that's something we have in common with Zen. In design, the question is asked, you know, how much do you really need? Monks, monks had seven things, right, traditionally. Here's, here's the next question. Displaying what is desirable, uh, why can't I be proud of what I've worked for? Because it's saying that there's a problem with displaying the things that are desirable. Um, I don't think so. Um, no, collectors, I'm an artist, and collectors buy my work. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's something that I appreciate about that. I mean, I, I wouldn't, I, you know, I stopped, when I, when I stopped selling, I stopped working for a while until, until, you know, um, so definitely the art is somewhere between me and the collector, me and the, and the person who appreciates it. It's not just something I want to pile up in my studio or in the basement or whatever. I want people to buy it and appreciate it. Same thing with furniture design that I design and build. Uh, it has a lower value uh, uh, than art, typically, but it has a higher functionality, different function. So these are, these are uh, con- concerns that I have to have. So I think if a person uh, works hard, uh, Matsuoka Roshi was from Japan, and he said people there save their money. They don't want to be dependent on anybody. So they'll have thousands of dollars in the bank, but it's not like, um, in his opinion, at least it was not a kind of um, love of money or power, although you know Japan's not exempt from these kinds of things. But he said the attitude was more they didn't want to get in a position where they were dependent on other people to support them. That's like a loss of face. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to be secure financially. Part of 
that some some hobbies I don't understand why why people would collect certain things or why they have to have five houses or why they have to have uh, um, you know like uh, who's the comic who has all the cars in his garage? He's collected all these antique cars and Jay Leno. Jay Leno, you know, I have some appreciation of that. Uh, there's some integrity about these antique cars and keeping them pristine and up and running. There's like like a historical value there. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it depends on the individual. It could be neurotic. It can go so far as it's over the edge. Who, who asked that question, and is that addressing it from the person who asked it? Um, I believe that's addressing it. I asked that question, actually. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> well, for instance, Mike Goldman is one of our senior guys. He's just become a brown robe. And uh, he's got 80, in, 80 stringed instruments. He's a, he's a player. He, he plays in several different ba- bands. Excellent musician. But he doesn't need 80 stringed instruments, you know. But if he, didn't, if he didn't collect them, what would happen to him? I mean, if he didn't have them, if he didn't take care of them. So you can think of it that way, too. I'm taking care of this stuff because it's, it has a value. Uh, there's a story in Zen about a famous monk. And I just came across it again recently, and I can't remember the name of the guy. But he took a he took a wooden Buddha statue; it had to be priceless, and he chopped it up and burned it for firewood, so he and the monks wouldn't freeze to death. And that's one of the big koan stories in Zen. Uh, it was that is what he did wrong. Which is the more valuable Buddha, the living Buddha, or this statue of Buddha? Right. Hmm. I guess it would. I guess it would go back maybe to with the stringed instruments. Would maybe maybe the question to ask would be, what value he placed on the instrument? Is it something right. that he could let go of, or is, is his value in those instruments? He 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 just gave one to one of our uh, residents, right? Who, who was having some financial trouble, was behind on his payments, and and actually moved out. But Mike gave him one of his guitars, so he had a guitar to play. And uh, the other thing with stringed instruments is you have to play them. Mm-hmm. You can't just let them sit there. They'll, they'll freeze up over time, you know. Mm-hmm. And he, he gave a talk, a, ser- a, a long talk one time for us, where he brought in a bunch of his guitars, and he went through the history of the guitar. And he had a guitar to represent sort of every stage in the history, like a very primitive, big old guitar that, he would play them and show us, and then he'd take the next one and show us the difference. And so he certainly wrings a lot of value out of them. Okay, here's our yeah, do you use what is it? Uh, um, ownership is determined by utility, marks, right? If you use it, that's ownership, owning something without using it. And there's a huge building in New York that's just full of art all in crates, just stored there to gain value that nobody ever sees. Hmm. You, you see really the downside of it too. The next verse, the sage governs by emptying minds and hearts, by weakening ambitions and strengthening bones. And the question related to that was, uh, what does weakening ambitions mean? Because it says he, governs by emptying minds and hearts and by weakening ambitions and strengthening bones. The idea of weakening ambition, what, mm-hmm. any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think uh, 
one of the common tropes that I use um, that I think I came up with, but it's, it's so common that, you know, we, we develop expectations uh, in all, all, all dimensions of life. And we develop expectations around our practice. And uh, that can get in the way. That can, that can be, it could be, if you become a Zen priest, for instance, if you, if it has something to do with ambition, that's going to be an ugly baby. That's going to be, you know, a mess. So, um, but I think you can, you, you can't help but develop expectations, part of what we call the monkey mind, you know, uh, hoping for enlightenment or some people join prosperity religions. Namyoho Renge Kyo is a, is a branch or a distant branch of Buddhism. It's considered to be for good luck, you know, we, uh, for good, good fortune and so forth. And there's some primitive re- aspects of religion that were carried into Buddhism through the countries of origin. But uh, I, what I say is we can hold an aspiration without developing expectations. An aspiration is something which is, by definition, undefined. You could, you could say, I, I aspire to a PhD in physics, you know, so you, you can have one that's defined. But aspira- aspiration generally has to do with a deeper motive, a deeper need. Uh, you aspire to be a better person. Who knows what that means? It's situational and so forth. So I think in Zen, there's nothing wrong with holding an aspiration. And you can define it a lot of different ways, very broad, deep, general ways to wake up, you know, to wake up completely. Uh, spiritual insight, you know, all kinds of words you can throw at it. But by definition, an aspiration is open-ended, broad, deep, undefinable, undefined. I think we can sit with that. We can, we can hold on to that. But if when expectations start to develop, you have to examine them very closely to see am I just putting another barrier in my own way? You know, am I trying to do Zen the way I do everything else and set myself goals? So I think I would put ambition in that context. You know, is it an ambition for an expectation? You're going to be disappointed if it doesn't happen. Or is it open-ended where you have no attachment to outcomes? How, how do you move from toward the no attachment to outcomes? How do you suggest? Well, think, think about Japan and the United States, World War II. Uh, supposedly, we wanted peace. Everybody wanted peace. We claim they started the war, you know, the usual, usual thing. Uh, the people in Japan, half of them, according to Matsuoka Roshi, did, were not approving of the war. Invading China and all that, they, you know, it was a political thing, just like we have now in our country. So look at what it took. Uh, for the enmity and the animosity and the animus and all the words you can throw at it to die down. It took generations of people dying before we can now be, have a reasonable relationship with Japan and be on some footing, which we consider relatively friendly allies, etc. Not in the 1940s and 1930s and 1940s. So then you have to look back on you and say, what, what was that all about? You know, what was that really all about? So I think uh, you look to what we speak of as uh, samsara, the world of patience, sometimes called. Samsara is a world of patience. We're wanting to convert it or have it 
have it evolve into nirvana, where we uh, world peace and so forth. Um, so the kind of patience that we practice in Zen is not attached to outcomes. It cannot be attached to outcomes. If you're patient with your son or your daughter or your father, your you know grandparents, because you're trying to manipulate them into a certain, get them into the old folks' home or get your your kids to do right, go to school, which naturally uh, you want to do. But if you're practicing patience because you, you're trying to get your outcome to come about and it may not fit the situation, uh, in some cases it does, that's not, that's not really, I think, the kind of patience we develop on the cushion. Mm. We develop patience on the cushion with ourselves in meditation when this may not get any better in my lifetime, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so if I can give up my attachment to outcomes and still practice patience with other people, like Japan and America, you know, eventually, but maybe not in our lifetime, this whole situation may be resolved. I think Zen takes the longer view that way, and um, um, you put uh, the practice of patience in that context. Here's the last stanza, and say, practice not doing. When action is pure and selfless, everything settles into its own perfect place. That's what you were talking about with selfless action, I think. Well, not exactly, because I think in Buddhism, we would argue that there's no such thing possible. Really? Uh, in Buddhism, we say the self is questioned. We question the self, but you cannot uh, separate. It's like any other uh, binary diet. You cannot separate selfish from selfless. Oh, okay, so the two cannot be separated. So all the actions we take in Buddhism are both selfish and selfless. That is, they're in between. If we if we conceive of these actions as selfless, then again we are, you know, uh, puffing ourselves up. We are uh, uh, trying to create uh, a self-image that is not exactly honest. If I uh, engage in seemingly altruistic activities, even if it's only because everything is going to get better, the whole world is going to be better, that's still selfish. So I think if we, if we try to pretend that we can take selfless action, we're not being honest with ourselves about ourselves. So we're not able to take selfless, true selfless action? Is that what you're saying? Uh, scientists argue that even altruistic actions on the part of animals have a survival edge to them. It doesn't have to do with the individual self of that being, but of the species or of the race, right? So... Um, if you act in such a way, say there's a, um, Buddha was, many of the tale, Jataka tales of Buddha were like this, where some drunken uh, soldier or warrior on the boat pulls out a sword and starts killing people, and Buddha grabs a knife or a sword from somebody else and kills him. In a prior life, these so-called Jataka tales that were made up, were told by the people who take, took care of the stupas and other monuments. So that was that seemed to be an altruistic action. He stopped 
he stopped this guy from killing these other people, the bloodshed and so forth. But it's also true that he killed another human being. And it's also said that in doing so, he stopped the karmic consequences of that person as well. However, he took on the karmic consequences of killing this being himself. So it's, uh, it's a fuzzy gray area uh, in terms of logic. But in, in Zen, at least, I think we don't think we can avoid the consequences of our actions, even actions of omission, not just actions of commission. So if you take an action in a given situation, I think this middle view, middle way view, says it doesn't matter whether it's selfish or selfless. The consequences are still there. And uh, the problem is how you interpret your own behavior. If you go into a situation and you say, oh, I'm doing the right thing, I'm trying so hard, and all these people are resisting, and they're giving me such a hard time, you know, that's like a, a melodrama going off in your own head. But if you enter into a situation, we, we say, we think, that if you can get right with yourself on the cushion, where you're kind of okay uh, with your situation, consequences, and so forth that you're living through, and that you will live through, aging, sickness, and death, if you're okay with that, then you probably can enter into the fray where complex things are going on and even dangerous things and maybe have a better chance of doing what we call the right thing. Mm -hmm. The right thing would be typically interpreted as the, the, the better good for the, for the, more, for the many people as, as much as possible, the greater good. Uh, Buddha was asked about a war. A tribe was planning to wage war on a neighboring tribe for various reasons. And they asked Buddha what he thought about that. And he said, if you can be sure, he said, if the outcome is going to be that both sides are going to be better off afterwards, then it can be considered a just war. Which, of course, begs the question, how could you possibly know beforehand? Right, right. So we have to go into situations not knowing whether we're doing the right thing or not. And we have to go into situations not knowing whether we're behaving in an entirely selfless or selfish manner or not. It, it can never be that simple from a Zen perspective, I think. But you still, you still take action. And this is what we mean by faith in Buddhism. Faith does not mean the absence of doubt. It means the presence of doubt, great doubt, but the ability to go ahead and act in the face of great doubt just as courage is the ability to act in the face of great fear. Fear for your own life, fear for the lives of others around you, you still can take, take action and, and do what seems to have to be done. And you have to admit, you have to, you have to go into it understanding you could be wrong. That's good, Sensei. Thank you. That, if we, if we want to think selflessness because that way we're not wrong. We can never be wrong. That doesn't compute in Zen. Okay. You've got to take the risk. Any questions, guys? Because I was going to ask you about uh, the practice of not doing, and you, you addressed doing, that. In but uh, remember, Dogen's, this is a simple, uh, I think an easier way to get at that. Master Dogen talks about non-doing. Uh, he relates the story of the old man sitting there, and one of his monks comes by and interrupts him in his meditation, really. He says, what are you thinking sitting there in that mountain still state? And the old, the old man says, I'm thinking, not thinking. 
He said, how can you think not thinking? He said, it is not thinking. So Master Dogen goes on and analyzes this as he usually does. And he said, it's not really not thinking and it's not thinking. It's somewhere in between. So he called it non-thinking. So, and he, he goes on to say that when you get to this point, uh, this is actualized, uh, this practice of zazen or this kind of meditation is actualized within non-thinking. When you begin to experience what he meant by non-thinking, thoughts may come and go, but that's not what you're doing. You're not trying to think your way to enlightenment. Now you're beginning to actualize the actual Zen practice. It goes on to say it's verified within non-interacting, which is a, a whole other meaning, whole other story. So the, the, it's easier to come at non-doing from that perspective. Non-interacting would be a state, a state so to speak, of non-doing, hmm. where um, it, when you're sitting in meditation, you think, I'm sitting in meditation. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. But as you sit there more and more, sitting still enough for long enough, you begin to realize that the body is doing most of this. The body's doing the breathing. The body's doing the living. The blood circulation is very little that I am, quote, doing. You know, I'm making some choices. So you begin to accept this idea of non-doing, that, that you're not doing life. Life is doing you. Hmm. Right? One of the sayings is, in, in truth, you are not it. But in truth, it is you. Yeah. Okay. So this is a, you know, this is a reflexive turnabout of our usual yeah. approach to things. To think I'm doing all this, and you begin to realize in, in your meditation that not really. You know, you can make some relatively minor choices, but you're pretty much along for the ride. Yeah. So non-doing, I think, is understood that way in Zen. It's a fact. It's a fundamental fact. We, we do things, and we're responsible for them. We don't escape the consequences. I can't stick a knife in you and claim I didn't kill you and avoid the consequence. I did that, right? And our deeds are the only thing that goes with us to our grave, according to Buddhism. That's good. Thank you, Sensei. Any questions for Sensei? Because we covered all of our questions that we had. Sensei, I appreciate you sharing with us. And guys, uh, appreciate y'all being here. Any questions before we go? Anything? Everyone good? Good. Thank okay, you. well, we'll see y'all next week, and Sensei, we'll see you next month. Okay, sorry about that. We'll oh, do, no problem. Thank we'll you, sir. We'll be on sir. time next time. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Hello, this is Buddy C. I wanted to make you aware of several recovery-related resources that I've posted in the episode description. These resources include a list of recovery podcasts, a free sober meditation app, daily recovery email, shared Google recovery calendars. Hope you put some of these resources to use, and have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends in recovery.